All right, Hosea, this is is number 12, lesson number 12 in our series. If you want to turn to chapter 9, we're going to be looking at chapter 9 of Hosea today. Last time we covered uh, all of chapter 8 and talked about four reasons for God's judgment uh, that were detailed uh, there, or looking at it from a different angle, uh, we said there were four expressions of the futility of idolatry uh, or of forsaking God. And so this is, uh, these are some of the things that we talked about uh, that took place there. So just to, it's, uh, we've, we've been kind of hit and miss here the last few weeks uh, in Hosea. So just to sort of, again, take us back and remind us of where we are in the book, um, just to refresh our memories on that. Uh, we said that the book is divided into two main parts, and we have this break between chapters 3 and chapter 4. Uh, chapters 1 to 3 are, are um, uh, sort of, you might call it a, a real-life drama involving Hosea and his marriage uh, to Gomer as, and their children. And then beginning in chapter 4, we find an, uh, a collection or an anthology of Hosea's prophecies that demonstrate essentially the long-suffering nature of God's love for his people. Uh, of course, to, to more fully understand that, we said that we have to understand the depths of sin. And so that's what often happens in Scripture is before we, before we get to the good news, we have to hear about the bad news. And so we've been, we've been hearing, honestly, a, a lot of that in the last, uh, the last several weeks. Uh, so in chapters 4 and 5, the Lord indicts and sentences his people as he, uh, in a sense, portrays himself as the prosecuting attorney, as well as the judge and the jury. And so we, we enter into chapter 4 with these, if you will, almost a, a, this sort of official-sounding charges brought against uh, the nation of Israel. We have God that is laying uh, out the, uh, the sort of systematically bringing those charges and then laying out the evidence, and then ultimately will uh, and has already, uh, in a sense, uh, announced the verdict. Um, and so in chapter 6, we got to this part uh, of that chapter, in fact it was the very beginning of that, where we saw what could be interpreted, uh, and actually is by some commentators, as a, as a true expression of repentance, uh, and the way they interpret that is they see this as an expression that is future. So this is not something that's presently going on in, in the life of Israel, but this is sort of a, a portrayal of genuine repentance, but something that is, we've not yet seen in Israel's uh, history. Uh, but we, we, we leaned in the direction of interpreting that as, the, as a, a false form of repentance, and the people are basically saying that they know God and that they want to seek God, but God, who has portrayed himself as prosecutor, um, judge, jury, then portrays himself as sort of a parole board that examines uh, the behavior of these people to say, you know, should we, should we step back and should we lighten the, the sentence? You know, and so there's this time where Israel's been warned. They say that they are repentant and that they understand the warnings that they've been given. And yet it seems that what God does there is just pierce through that and say, listen, guys, your, your faithfulness you say these words as if you're repentant, but your faithfulness is like the dew on the grass in the morning. I mean, it's like it is, it is there for a moment, and then it is quickly, quickly evaporates. And so he is the one who, the Lord is the one who examines any professions of, of repentance uh, in his people. 
so the, the, the lesson there is just you can't fool God. I mean, right? I mean, you can, you can say, say the right words. You can, you can cry. You can go to church. You can go to the altar. You can make a sacrifice and all that stuff. But that doesn't mean that you're necessarily in your heart broken, contrite, uh, and, and repentant before the Lord. So that's, uh, we sort of see, see him portrayed uh, as that, as sort of that, in that parole board uh, kind of function. And now uh, we've, we have entered, as of the last time, beginning in chapter 8, really this will run through the end of chapter 10, a time when God is presented as the executioner. Uh, so things are escalating. Um, uh, he's going to, to uh, uh, have the orders concerning the punishment of his people carried out. Uh, there are uh, alterations of, of fitting punishments because of the particular kinds of crimes that have been repeatedly and consistently committed by God's uh, straying and erring people. And so there's, there's, there's specific judgments that are, that are sort of handcrafted uh, and matched with the specific crimes that Israel has committed as a nation. So that's kind of the section when we're, where we're in. And when I say we've had a lot of sort of, of darkness, that's because that's really for going back into chapter 7, all the way back into chapter 6, we're just seeing like we're getting to this point where it's just like you just feel like it's going to snap. You know, it's just like can we take any more indictments? Can we take any more evidence? And so all this has been sort of building up. Let's just uh, pick up here in chapter 9. Let me read the chapter and then we'll walk through it. Uh, a verse at a time. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the, mount, like the nations, for you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. You have loved harlots' earnings on every threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. They will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please Him. Their bread will be like the mourner's bread. All who eat it, uh, eat of it will be defiled, for their bread will be for the, themselves alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents." Verse 7, the days of punishment have come, the days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool, the inspired man is demented because of the, of the grossness of your iniquity and because of the, your hostility, because your hostility is so great. Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet, yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways, and there is only hostility in the house of his God. They have gone deep in depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit of the, of the fig tree in its, fruit, in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre, but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. 
Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. All right. So let's work. Verse 1. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the nations, for you have played the harlot forsaking God. So he's just saying, again, we've talked about this issue of harlotry, this infidelity on Israel's part, uh, them forsaking the Lord, and he's simply just saying, do, stop your celebrations. You know, do not rejoice. Again, these people, folks, were not, they were continuing to go through the motions in a lot of ways. Right, They were continuing to, in their minds, go and, and, and worship and make these offerings and claim to know the Lord and claim to have a close relationship with the Lord and all that, but they were mixing all of that worship in with, with cult worship, right? with, with false, the worship of false gods. So unacceptable to the Lord. The Lord sees through that, and he's just telling them, listen, you know, it's as if he's saying, you know, not don't do this in the future, but it's as if he's saying, like, you're doing this. Like, you're rejoicing. Like, you're, you think everything is fine, right? You're celebrating, and I'm saying stop the celebration, right? Do not rejoice because you are in a desperate place. You are in a, a slippery place. You are in a dangerous place having alienated your God. So rather than turning back to him, which is what they had opportunities to do, and again, I, I taught yesterday in track three of the conference on the long-suffering nature of God. But one of the things that, you know, I mean, long-suffering is just God, God uh, withholding, right, his wrath, his, his righteous wrath. He just delays that. And, and yet what, what that should cause us to do is to realize that's an opportunity for repentance, right? I mean, for God to not immediately bring judgment is to give us an opportunity to repent. But what the world does with that and what sometimes even believers do with that is they take that for granted, right? They take God's long-suffering and patience for granted, and they don't repent. And so they had had these warnings over and over and over again. It's not just with Hosea. I mean, in the previous chapter, Hosea mentions this sort of the history of the prophets. I mean, he wasn't like the first guy that ever came with this message of repentance or this message of challenging the nation of Israel about its unfaithfulness. So rather than turning back to the Lord... He says, you've done the total opposite. You have, you have run away from the Lord um, and have for, forsaken your God, not in an accidental way, not in a, um, a haphazard way, but you've done it in a very high-handed way. So it says, you have, looked at, you have looked at what has been said, you have understood the truth, and then you have willfully walked away from that revelation. So he says there at the end of verse uh, at the end of verse 1, you have loved harlot's earnings on every threshing floor. And then in verse 2, threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. Now, that was exposed earlier, but they persist in this, uh, in, in this prostituting kind of, of activity. He talked about, I think it was back in chapter, chapter 2, where he talks about them going to their lovers, you know, for these things and not realizing that it's actually God is the one who's supplying everything they need. And he's the one that's blessing them with all of these gifts. 
So what he does is he just doesn't allow them to, to, to get the thing that, they, that they're searching for, right? He keeps it out of arm's reach, right? Because he doesn't want them to find that satisfaction, right? He wants them to experience the futility of idolatry. He wants them to experience the futility of, of, of never being satisfied when you're on the run from, from the Lord. So this was going on, this prostituting kind of behavior, uh, all the way, as we've seen, from the leadership level down, all the way through the core of the people. So he's mentioned the princess and the priests and the kings, and then at times he's applied those indictments to just the population uh, in, in general. And it's because of such persistence in their pursuit of false worship and the consistent documentation that we've seen of their apostasy that God announces his judgments in verse 3 and following. So this is getting into that, you might say, getting into that executioner mode uh, at this point. Uh, He's pronouncing his judgments. Things are about to be set in motion, uh, not simply announced, because as we get further into this, this judgment is more and more and more imminent. And part of that judgment will be that the northern kingdom will be taken into captivity by Assyria. Or as verse 3 states, they will not remain in the Lord's land. So this is, this is God's judgment that first, first and foremost, they will be expelled from the promised land. That land that was so important because it goes all the way back to the original promise given to Abraham by God back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Uh, That was part of the stipulations of God's unconditional commitment to them. But now, Hosea says, they've they've reached a point where they will not remain in the Lord's land, which it appears that they have forgotten about, right? They have forgotten about the fact that this is not their land, right? This is is the Lord's land. It It was always His to begin with, that belonged to him, and he privileged Israel, he privileged them, if you want to use this analogy, to be uh, as, if, as if to be tenants, right, uh, of this special piece of real estate. Go back to Leviticus chapter 25. Oh, by the way, let me put this up here in case you've got a different, I'm, I'm, this is New American Standard, just so it's easier maybe to follow along. I know a lot of you have different, uh, different translations. But you could go back to Leviticus 25, verse 23. It says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold. This is just some of the stipulations regarding that in God's covenant. Uh, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. So the Lord had told them this, right? This is my land, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. And he gives them these, how to handle these issues over time and how to, as far as uh, ownership, uh, family and that kind of thing, how to redeem back property, all that's included in, in that. So this was, a, this was a special privilege and not a right. And what had happened by the time we reach Hosea's day is that they had violated again and again their lease agreement. Okay, so it's like be like somebody they they have a piece of property and they have a tenant, but in that they have this agreement that if you're going to live here, you got to abide by certain rules. And so you have sort of a contract of sorts, and you're like, as long as you abide by this, then you can stay. It's as if God is saying, "Listen, we we talked about this, right? We we laid this out very early on. 
that you had to conduct yourself in such and such a way, but because you have persistently and consistently violated that expectation and those conditions, then he says this is what's going to happen. And so the Lord decides to evict them or to send them into another captivity. Continues there in verse 3, he says, But Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. Again, as we saw both in the last verse of chapter 7 and in verse 13 of chapter 8, Egypt uh, is used as a sort of a buzzword for captivity, uh, that original captivity from which God had rescued uh, his people. So, so Egypt is used, uh, not, it's not talking about literally Egypt, it's using this in sort of a symbolic way. It's like saying, it's like saying remember, remember the old days, right? Remember those years of captivity when the bonds in Egypt kept, the, kept growing and growing and, and increasing and increasing, right? Because that oppression uh, built up, right? This oppression when they were in slavery or they were in Egypt uh, sort of uh, increased over time. And then you look, look at chapter 11, if you want to turn over there in verse 5, we'll see this again pop up about Egypt. He says in verse uh, 5 of chapter 11, they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, right? So just declare, he's just clarifying that he's using He's been using Egypt in a symbolic way, but he's saying they're not going to return to literal Egypt, but they're going to go to Assyria. And it says he will be their king because they refused to return to me. So when Egypt is mentioned in these earlier chapters, it's not talking about the Egypt to the south, but the Egypt to the north and to the east, or you say Assyria. In fact, this is a, I mean, I assume you're, you might be familiar with the, with the geography of that area, but this, bo- this box is basically Israel. There's uh, Judah. Of course, there's Egypt. And uh, you'll notice here there's a city here called Memphis in parentheses. So we're gonna, that, that comes up. We're about to see that. So again, that's not a reference to Tennessee, just in case you were wondering. All right? um, it's a reference, again, to Egypt. But look, we have a Syria. There's Nineveh. So we have this way up here. And of course, this is the Babylonian Area, but you can see that that's that is the seventh century. This is kind of the, uh, the a picture of, of Assyria at its at its at its dominant point. I mean, when it had expanded all the way, you can see it. Actually, they invade. Actually, go into Egypt, um, and uh, uh, the Book of Nahum actually talks about uh, some of that conflict that they had uh, with Egypt at the time. So these these references to Egypt were designed to remind the people of the original captivity from which they had been rescued and then constituted as a nation. Uh, Now, some of the catastrophic effects of this coming captivity of judgment are mentioned in verses uh, 4 to 6. In verse 4, he says, They will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please Him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread, all who eat of it. Will be defiled, for their bread will be for themselves alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver, and thorns will be in their tents. All significant judgments for Israel's disobedience. For starters, when this occurs, he basically is making the point here in these in these first a couple of verses, that worship that is acceptable to Yahweh, God, will become, it'd be impossible, 
right? They're not going to even have now the ability to do, to worship the Lord. Uh, this, this day is approaching when you will, it's as if he's saying, there's this day approaching when you will not even be able to come to me. Uh, of course, they had been coming, as we've seen, but they had been coming with this sort of pseudo-worship, this very, uh, this, this uh, false or fake worship, uh, as well as this syncretistic worship where they were blending their belief in God with these other, um, uh, other worldviews uh, in, their, in their religion, calling on the name of Yahweh, but also mixing that with the worship of uh, pagan gods. But it's because of this that the time was near when they would not be able to go to the Lord because of the imminent destruction of their homeland. So, so it's as if you say, you know, you're already in a difficult situation. I mean, he's already brought... Uh, some pretty severe indictments and judgments against them in the present for what they've done, but it's as if they're going from the frying pan to the fire, right? In other words, they, the things that they have been experiencing, which are, you know, it's not just the Lord directly bringing judgment, but there is, we've mentioned, just a sowing and reaping principle, right? I mean, at the, at the minimum, they've just been reaping the natural consequences of their sin, so that's already been going on, but it's, it's going to get worse, right? And this, is, and this is going to happen incrementally, first with the Assyrians coming in and doing devastation to the northern kingdom, uh, with their soldiers intermarrying with the women of Israel and polluting the land, and then we'll have this uh, another sort of wave of massive destruction coming later, uh, this second wave with the Babylonian invasion of the southern kingdom. So we have this Egyptian-like captivity, and the imminency or the nearness of that judgment is confirmed in the next verse, verse 7, says the days of punishment have come, the days of retribution have come, let Israel know this. So he's, these things are spoken of in the scriptures, and you'll see time, at times in the scriptures where things are spoken of as past events, even though they're things that haven't happened yet, right? And so this is uh, in, in the... Um, uh, in the Hebrew language, it's um, uh, a prof- we call it a prophetic perfect. So it's it's basically um, uh, using this this tense in the Hebrew language to say that things these things are as good as done, right? So this judgment, he's saying basically this judgment is so imminent and so irreversible that I'm going to speak of it as if it already happened. And so he's saying that the days of punishment have come, although they really haven't yet at this point, right? They're still yet future, but he's saying as if it, this is a done deal, right? And so it's just a way to express uh, a certainty about what is being prophesied. So these judgments will take place. It is a guarantee. It continues in verse 7 and into verse 8. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented because of the, gro- of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Ephraim was a watchman with my God. And this is, uh, again, this reference to my God tells us that Hosea is addressing the people directly. So at this point, it's, he's talking to the people. This is his message to them because he refers to that in, 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 in the singular. This is my God. So he says, Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet, yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways, and there is only hostility in the house of his God. That's a little difficult to 
translate this is a little difficult to in, interpret this. There's a couple, two or three different uh, maybe ways to think about this. But I think what is likely happening is that Hosea is exposing those, uh, you might say, those court prophets or those lying cult prophets of apostate Israel, and they had a bunch of these. Um, so he's, he's not speaking about, when he says the prophet is a fool, he's not speaking about God's, uh, his, the, the prophets that have been truly commissioned by God. He's talking about these prophets in the land that were lying to the, the kings and the princes. And so, and again, I'll show you an example of that in a moment. Uh, so he's sort of contrasting himself as the true prophet of God. He is the true, Hosea is the true mouthpiece of God. But you had these kings and other leaders in Israel that would basically hire their own prophets and make them their, their religious guys. I mean, this, these are the people. Like they, they would have these religious uh, uh, prophets, these leaders that they would turn to, that they would, they would get counsel from, that they would consult about various things. And of course, what they wanted to hear, right? What do people want to hear? Good news, right? That's what they want to hear. So what happened is they would, they would essentially hire these men and surround themselves with these men. And they would do that because they wanted to be told all the good, all the pros- about all the prosperity and all the good things that were going to happen. But these prophets for hire, according to Hosea, he's saying they're fools, right? The prophet, he's, the prophet is a fool. He's, he's demented. These were men who were called in but only gave an ear-tickling good report. Uh, you have an example of this back in 1 Kings chapter 22 where uh, King Ahab of Israel in the north tried to get Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, at that time, in the south, to join him in battle. In fact, if you want to look over there, First Kings twenty-two, and you'll see this. So, it's how this kind of plays out. So, Ahab is is is, is wanting to join forces and go to battle. And so, there in First um, Kings twenty-two, we could pick up there in verse four. It says uh, he said to Jehoshaphat. Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am, I am as you are, my people are as your people, my horses as your horses. Essentially saying, I, I don't have a problem necessarily with this. But then it says, verse 5, Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. And then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain and they said, go, right? Go, man, let's do this. Go up for the Lord. We'll give it, in, give, give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? That's what I think about. Okay, so King Ahab calls, the, right? How many? We got 400 men coming in. They're supposed to be telling us what the Lord wants. All right, so this tells you Jehoshaphat, at this point, probably knew he was not, he should not be doing this, okay? So he's, he's already, he's, there's some uneasiness here because these 400 men in unison say, go for it. And then he says, is there a, is there a prophet of God? Like is, like, is there actually a man of God that we could talk to about this and get a true word from the Lord about it? So he says, let's inquire of him. Verse 8, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. 
All right. <laughs> okay. All right, folks. I mean, are we talking about our culture? You know, it's like, it's like, isn't this what people want, right? The multitude, right, of the people that are speaking for God, right, are telling people what they want. And then when you say, well, is there a true, is there someone that's actually being faithful to God and is actually teaching and preaching the truth? And we'll say, oh, yeah, there's that guy over in so-and-so, but I hate him, right? So he says, I hate him because he does not prophesy what? Good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah, but Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah. And then the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat the king, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And then Zedekiah made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. And all the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Verse 13, Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold, now the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. Okay, so listen, do you understand the situation you're going into? Okay, I mean, I'm serious. Is this, I mean, this stuff happens. I'm telling you folks right here, right in the 21st century. Right, you're going into this and I'm telling you, this is what the other guy said. It would be to your advantage if you would just say kind of what they've been saying, right? Speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. I mean, folks, what what an example for us, right? (laughs) The way we're supposed to be living our Christian lives, right? We just speak the truth, right? We don't have to water it down. We don't have to change it, right? We're not, we don't have to edit this. We don't have to apologize for God. I mean, some people would look at what this entire book of Hosea and say, I just don't know about that. I mean, that just sounds like God's angry. It just sounds like this, this wrath thing is really, really bothering me, right? Can we get to the New Testament? Because it isn't in the New Testament we have a God of love, and it's in the Old Testament we have the God of wrath. Well, not exactly, right? There's wrath in the New Testament, and there's love in the Old Testament, right? But that's the way sometimes people think about this. So he says... If you would do that, and Micaiah said, listen, if the Lord tells me, that's what I'm going to say. And when, the, when verse 15, when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and succeed and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Uh-oh, right? There's some faltering here, right? Then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And so he said... So he actually got a little pressure to don't, don't, don't play games, all right? Don't cave. Just, I, I need to know what's going on. And then notice what he says. I mean, talk about a switch. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Folks, this is, this is what we're dealing with in Hosea, I think. What we're dealing with is Hosea addressing these so-called prophets of his day, these so-called religious men, these so-called these, these court um, uh, priests or whatever that were willing to lie, right? They were willing to say whatever they had to say to stay in good, in with, in good with the leaders. So Hosea is the true prophet, 
and he is exposing these lying court and cultic prophets. And interestingly, you'll notice there in verse 8, back in Hosea, who originally as a corporate entity was associated as a true prophet, Ephraim. Right, and again, this Ephraim, this is a buzzword for Israel. So Ephraim, he's saying, Ephraim started out as a true watchman. That is one who would warn people of all kinds of impending danger and judgment. That was, that was the function of a watchman. Ephraim started out that way, but Hosea exposes where they ended up. With their false prophets and their court prophets using snares and deceit and traps not serving as a guard and a protection, and the result, only enmity, hostility, and hatred, not only in the house of the cult and court prophets, but throughout the nation of Israel. Verse 9. Are we on the next two? Yep. There we are. They have gone deep in depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Right, so there's, this is, um, there's a downhill slide. Uh, the ESV, I think, says they have sunk deep into corruption or something close to that. Uh, as in the days of Gibeah, which, again, Gibeah, when, it, when you see these references to different uh, people and different places, you have to go back sort of in history and find, okay, what, what is the, what's the connection? Like when he says you're like this or you've done this like that, What's the, what's the reference point for it? And I think this is likely a reference back to Judges uh, 19 and 20, which is this horrendous episode about the rape and the murder of a, of a concubine of, of this particular Levite by the men of Gibeah. And so that, that Levite's concubine was taken and raped and murdered, and then to muster sort of the revenge for that, he chops up the body of the concubine, and then he sends pieces of that to all the tribes of Israel in a, in a way to, to sort of rally them to go after these perpetrators in Gibeah, so to actually come against the tribe of Benjamin as a way of revenge. So again, he's just saying they have gone deep in depravity as in the days of Gibeah. He's just saying that the kinds of things that the men of Gibeah did, rape, murder, I mean, uh, they, they actually, when, when this priest went in, this Levite, Levite went into that town and stayed overnight, it was very much like Sodom and Gomorrah. They were, the men were actually asking for, for homosexual relations. And so the, the man who was, uh, that, that actually hosted the Levite in his home actually offered, I think it was his own daughter. And so then the, and then the concubine that was with the Levite, so they just, they just basically turned this, this young lady over to the men outside, and they basically raped her through the night and left her dead at the at the front of the door. And so, they this is in their history. I mean, this is they they know this, and that incited the other tribes. So think about this: when the other tribes got this piece of a body, basically, and when this when they began to sort of rally these people together, they didn't have a hard time getting those tribes to go against Gibeah. It's like when they heard about this thing that happened, they got really angry, all right? They're like, no, we're in, right? We're in this fight. And so they all come together. They come against the tribe of Benjamin. The Lord, not initially, but eventually gives them, them victory in that. But what I'm, what I'm saying here is that 
they would have, this reference, they would have understood it made total sense that those other tribes did what they did. It made total sense that they saw that act of violence and, and were incited to do something about it, right? And so what Hosea is saying is, the Lord as the executioner, that sense of, of anger, that sense of, and I'm not talking about uh, you know, the Lord having a temper tantrum. I'm not talking about the Lord having a mood swing. I'm talking about real righteous anger. He's just saying, you should know why the Lord is angry because you as a nation are doing the same things that those men did in that community of Gibeah. So if you look at that and that makes you angry, <laughs> then you should understand why God is angry with the way that you're living. And so I'm just saying, folks, things happen in our culture all the time, and unbelievers even hear about it, and do they get upset? Did we have some people this week that were upset, right, about some things that happen in, in, in the news, and they hear about these things, and they get all angry and upset? But here's the thing. They never make that connection to God. Right? It's like they get personally upset. They get on board, right? We're going to go march. I mean, I come through town. I was trying to get somewhere to an appointment, and I, down 92, they had guys, people with signs there outside, I think, Loudermilk's office there that's on the left in Woodstock. And so people were protesting and all this kind of stuff. I'm saying a lot of those people, not all of them, but maybe most of them could have been unbelievers. But I'm saying they'll go to sleep that night and never think about that sort of indignation that they have about what's going on, you think that's indignation? You think about God's indignation, and you think about how justifiable his indignation is. And sometimes we get upset about things, and we don't even, we have a hard time even defending why we're upset. And I'm not saying that, that particular case this week, that that's that situation. I'm just saying people get upset about things all the time, but can hardly outline and define and clarify why it is that they should be upset. So this was just something that happened in Israel's history where, again, God just saying, folks, learn from your history, right? If that bothers you, you, ought to, you think about how, how you're living and how that not only, not only angers God but grieves God. It grieves him. So the people have conducted themselves in vile and treacherous ways, and God will not overlook their iniquity. He will remember it. He will judge them for it. And then in verse 10, we see a brief historical reminiscence of the good old days, if you will, those days of first love when the Lord first drew Israel to himself. He says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. And so these are just, these are tender images, especially to those that, as we've mentioned, that are in sort of an agrarian society. And it's like that tenderness found in Deuteronomy 32. Verse 10, it says there that he found him, speaking of Israel, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness, wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, and he guarded him as the pupil of his eye. So it's like in the midst of this vengeance and in the midst of referring to God as this executioner who's about to bring this judgment, there's this little brief statement about, about God's care for them, Right? God's concern for them. Again, just keep going back to the fact that God in His mercy, the very beginning, they didn't deserve it, but He, he, he spread out His amazing uh, 
love for them. And yet, it wasn't long before they rebelled, right? He says there, but they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. Again, crisis at the outset. After God's first display of love, this is, this is right after the Lord has called them out of bondage. You can read about it in Numbers 25. <clears throat> but the unbridled ingratitude of this people who had been loved and cherished by <clears throat> the Lord. Then in verses 11 and 12, we have this departure, uh, sort of imagery. Uh, at the beginning of verse 11 and at the end of verse 12, it says, As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. So Israel's glory will depart. And then we see at the end of verse 12, this second woe in the book. We had seen the first one back in chapter 7, verse 13. And and this woe being the fact that the Lord will depart from them. And then in the middle of of these verses is Yahweh's prevention of conception, gestation, and births, plus wiping out any older children who were already living. So that's some heavy-duty stuff, right? I mean, the Lord's saying, you're not going to be able to have children, and the ones that are already there and are alive, their lives are going to be taken as well. So they're going to fly away like a bird in departure, and I am going to depart from them. Verse 13, and again, this emphasis on childlessness continues. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre. Now, we again, here's another thing. You hear, okay, there's a, there's a, a place. Well, what does that have to do with what's going on? Well, this is, uh, Tyre was a, sort of a no, no, notorious um, it was a city-state that was used again and again to illustrate uh, a kind of people that were privileged, but then turned their back and did not, not, did not acknowledge that it came from God. And so Tyre is used as an example of that, of someone that has been blessed in, in, in great ways, in un, undeserving ways, and yet sort of turn their back on that, right, and don't see the privilege of it. And so Israel is tragically following suit, right? They, they were equally privileged, and they will also be judged for their pride and their rebellion. Continues in verse 13, But Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord. What, what will you... You need me? No. Oh, yeah. Oh, ten minutes. I got it. Yeah, but I'll have to get it for you at the end. Yeah, we're good. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I have something they need desperately. All right. (laughs) Give them, O Lord, verse 14, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Wow. So so you think about what a start and what a finish. They started out in a pleasant meadow, cared for, placed in a special garden. But what happened? What happened is they did not recognize the privilege that they had of being so blessed. What occurs in verse 14 is Hosea himself, he he starts to speak in what we call an an imprecation mode, or you might even say a a cursing type of mode. You you heard the imprecatory psalms, 
We use that, that as a phrase, basically the, the, the cursing psalms, right? These are times when the psalmists are basically looking at their enemies and they're pronouncing like curses on their enemies. And that's, that's sort of what's going on here because Hosea, he, he feels, it's as if he feels the hurt, it's as if he feels the grief of God about what's going on. And so he chimes in and basically says, give them this, Right? So it's as if all the stuff that he has, these previous judgments, which Hosea himself has relayed from God to the people, it's as if after relaying those things, it's as if Hosea sits back and then says, you know what, God? You're right. Do it. It's like he just kind of, like, it just pops out there like, yeah, this, this, is, this, is, what, this is what needs to happen. So uh, that... And that specific judgment mentioned here is, is really, and this is, we don't have time to really pursue this, but a, a, really a shocking reversal of the blessing pronounced by Jacob. Uh, you know, Jacob renamed Israel. Um, he pronounced a blessing over Ephraim and Manasseh. You may recall that in, in the last days of his life, Jacob was pronouncing blessing over the 12 tribes, but remember that Joseph did not have a tribe, and so it was split among his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So these were actually Jacob or Israel's grandsons. And so he pronounces this blessing over them back in Genesis 49. But one of the things he says there, he says from, this is in verse 25 of Genesis 49, from the God of your father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. So blessings of productivity, blessings of having children, blessings of lineage, but these are the very things that are reversed in the judgments of Hosea. Now, verses 15 and 16, Hosea returning to to being a strict mouthpiece for God in contrast to what he sort of just blurted out, right? So he's kind of, he says this, this pronounces this thing as sort of his own personal, like that's what you need to do. But then he goes back to the Lord is going to do these things. Verse 14, all their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house, which is a reference to, I think, the Holy Land. I will love them no more. All the princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. So this is the double barrel blast. God is hating them and he is loving them no more. Basically reinforcing the same thing. The one who had loved them with a perfect love, they had, they had been beloved by God, but because of their disobedience and unfaithfulness, it is stated, I will love you no more. And in verse 16, the Lord says, essentially, I will put an end to subsequent generations. That's it. The lineage, the lineage will stop. And then in verse 17, Hosea sort of pulls back and summarizes and interprets these previous revelations of God's judgment that are imminent. Imminent. They're imminently on the horizon for, for God's nation. It says, verse 17, My God will cast them away because they have not listened to me, and they will be wanderers among the nations. So th- this has been their history. They have had a history of not listening, right? And when you, when you, when you uh, sort of dig into that, 
the, the aspect of listening to God uh, in the Old Testament is, is basically synonymous with obeying God. Right? So it says, you didn't listen. He says, you didn't obey. So this is, their his, this is their history of not listening, a history of not obeying, and for that, they were consigned to be wanderers because you cannot do that to God. You, you cannot reject God and, in this case, uh, his true prophets. But again, this would not have been a surprise to them. In fact, we'll just end with this. Deuteronomy 28 Verse 64, moreover the, Lord, moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you and your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing, failing of eyes, and despair of soul." So it's not as if this is, they didn't know this was coming, right? The Lord warned them early on at the very beginning that this would happen. And that is what was on the horizon for, for Israel. Some would say the chickens are coming home to roost, right? Now, I guess a question you should think about, are you uncomfortable yet? <laughs> I mean, are you uncomfortable with this, uh, I love you no more? You should be, right? I should be, right? Because we're thinking back to, well, 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 but what about, weren't there some things earlier in Hosea that said that he was going to restore them and, and, and they were going to repent? Yep. Okay, so I think what, what's going on is that earlier in the book, remember we had those sort of rapid fire you know, there's the bad news, and then five verses later, there's some good news. And then we'd have a little bad news, we'd have some good news. And it came at us pretty quick, so we didn't get immersed in the bad news too long before we got the good news. The thing that's troubling for us right now is that we haven't seen much good news in a while, right? And so it's making us uncomfortable. And I would just say this, folks, it is because, and this is true of me, we do not have the fear of the Lord that we need to have. That, that is why this makes us uncomfortable in, in, in part, right? We, we do not think enough about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the righteousness of God. We do want to, like many sometimes of those in our culture, want to rush past the judgment and, and, the, and the wrath part and get to the love and the mercy and the grace part, right? And I'm saying, but it's good for us to read chapters like Hosea 9 and just stop and not, not rush on because it's coming, right? We get to chapter 11, we get to chapter 14, we have some more rounds of good news. <laughs> We're going to be relieved when we, when we get there. But it's, it's not bad for us to just sort of be suspended, right, in these chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, because there's a lesson for us to learn there, right? We need strong medicine about how our sins offend a holy God. We need strong medicine. I even said this in our, uh, in, our, in our session yesterday, talking about God's long-suffering, and that is that we, we need the fear of God to sanctify our love for God. Because if we don't start with a fear of God, then our love for God turns into we love the gifts from God. It's the fear of the Lord that sort of sanctifies our love for Him so that these things stay in balance, Right? where we love the Lord, but we love the Lord for who He is, right? 
not for the goodies, right? Not for the things that he gives to us. And so it's good for us sometimes to just get into these passages and just stay there and not, we want, we want to go on. We want to get to that, those promises of restoration. And I'm saying we need to feel the tension that we have at the end of this chapter with the Lord saying, I, hate, I hated you in the, when you were doing that, and I love you no more, and this is a done deal, right? And you're like, you know, it's just like, but, but, but it's okay. Hold on. But soak the lesson in, right? Soak that lesson in. You may be saved. You may be in, in the righteousness of Christ. You may, you, you, no condemnation, right? All that stuff. It's true of us if you're a believer, but that doesn't mean that your sin doesn't offend God, right? And so this is a place for us to just stop and, and to absorb that and to ask ourselves the questions, do, do, we, need to, do we need to spend some more time there in our, in our own lives? Um, uh, thinking about the seriousness of sin and thinking about, um, you know, the bad news. Thinking more about the bad news. Because when we understand that, it gives us a greater appreciation Right for the fact that God does love us unconditionally. Right, God is going to keep His word. He is. We are. We are not. We are. Our our standing with God is not in jeopardy if we are in Christ. Right, but that doesn't mean that we need to take the foot off the gas of pursuing holiness in our lives and avoiding sin, fleeing sin, running away from sin. Right, because a person who truly fears the Lord does that. Right. They run from sin, and they run to Christ. And this is about worship, right? In fact, that's the whole reason why God delivered them from bondage to begin with, right? It wasn't necessarily about killing off a bunch of Canaanites and taking land and all that. It was If you go all the way back, the original reason God said that he wanted to take the people out of Egypt was so that they would go, they would come out of bondage and worship. That was the main reason that they were delivered, and that is the main reason why we've been saved. Even though we get sometimes distracted by other things, this is about worshiping God, worshiping God. Okay, so we will hold it there, and then we'll come back. We're going to still have a little bit more of that, but then I said there's, there's some, there is some good news, good news to come, but let's not rush past these important, important truths and lessons.